Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing, brutalize and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. We're getting to the end of the year here, uh, and we'll be taking a few weeks off from the podcast over the holidays, but we will be back in swing early next year. Um, So expect our annual CES recap, uh, along with plenty of other fun podcasts as as well in the new year. Um, And we hope you've enjoyed all the podcasts this year, and we'll have some certainly some fun stuff next year as well. For today's podcast, uh, we are bringing back uh, author Barry Eisler, who's been on the podcast a few times in the past, uh, discussing a a range of things, uh, from the future of publishing to issues around government surveillance. Uh, And we had a a session that he and I did uh, where I was interviewing him about his one of his uh, recent novels. Uh, Today, though, we're going to talk about an issue that is... um, well, I guess a little bit more nebulous, I think, but perhaps just as important. Uh, and it's one that, that he and I have talked about a bunch. Um, and it's a, the question of how do you frame discussions around issues in ways that uh, will have the most impact and the most actual value? And and the key question related to this is is whether or not people can frame sort of difficult policy debates on realistic terms, such that a genuinely useful discussion can actually result from it because too often we see debates framed in ways designed to only get people angry or to get them passionate in some way or another, but which leave out sort of a a rational basis for discussion. And so this initially came up in a discussion that that Barry and I were having uh, about the whole net neutrality debate where I've tried to explain, hopefully in great detail, um, the basis for my position on, on net neutrality and, and also why it's changed over time um, and have had some people sort of a, a attack me <laughs> for not completely towing some sort of ideological line uh, based on whatever ideology the, the people happen to follow. Uh, and And what's so interesting about these discussions and and sort of seeing how some people debate some of these topics is there's there's often this unwillingness for people to to even accept uh, a basic framing device in the first place. And part of what we've often tried to do on TechTurt with the the various issues that we cover is is give the basis for an argument and then explain the assumptions and the reasoning behind our position based on that. And in a useful debate, even if people disagree you know, people are perfectly able to challenge the underlying assumptions and then come to different conclusions. And you can have an interesting discussion about that. But that seems to not happen all that often in in policy debates. Um, People just sort of immediately jump to attacking the end result and are unwilling to sort of discuss how we got there or what assumptions are involved. And instead, it just becomes uh, a sort of, well, this is obviously wrong because it doesn't lead to the result that I want. (laughs) So this is a topic that I I know Barry is uh, super 
super interested and passionate in because uh, I, I think every time he and I uh, get together for lunch, which is every every few months or so, we we sit down to talk about whatever, and and the and this topic comes up over and over again. So to some extent, this conversation on the podcast is, is something of a recreation, I think, of of some of the conversations that uh, we've had over over time. Uh, and uh, joining us. Uh, this time is our regular co-host Dennis Yang as well, um, and so. But Barry, since you're the guest, let's let's start with you. And and why do you think that this issue of sort of framing has become such a focus of of yours lately? Hey, Mike and Dennis, thanks for having me back on. Sure. Well, it's not a it's not a recent interest of mine. Uh, proper framing. It's something that goes back a long way, because there are a lot of political issues I think are really important. And I see that they're getting, uh, they're getting framed in an improper way. I don't say that because people disagree with me. Uh, as you and I discussed at lunch yesterday, I, I actually don't care that much about whether someone's conclusions match mine. Right. I, just, I just want a proper framework, and then we can have a much more productive conversation. So what got this thing started yesterday, it was interesting, is net neutrality. Right. And I don't follow the issue of net neutrality that carefully. Most of what I know about it, I know from reading your articles, which I personally consider to be one of the best ways out there for anyone who wants to understand net, net neutrality to approach the topic. Uh, you write really insightful, nuanced, thoughtful pieces. And on this topic, I see I could see a pattern, even though I'm not a subject matter expert. I could see people saying, like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you're in favor of regulation, that means you're against a free market. Right. And and that's that kind of thinking, I I think I understand where it comes from, assuming it's not cynical, it's just just nakedly cynical and propagandistic. I think it comes from a human urge to reverse engineer from the conclusion you want to an, a framework that easily uh, achieves that conclusion and in fact probably make a framework that makes the conclusion inevitable but a proper framework i think would start with something like this well hang on a minute are you against all government regulation and and on the assumption that the answer is no that you're talking to someone who's not against all government regulation who's who's not against all government involvement in the market then the question becomes, okay, what areas are the proper uh, are properly addressed by some form, some form of market regulation? You might still think that there should be no government regulation of uh, internet access at all. That's okay, but at least we've acknowledged that government regulation itself is not inherently a bad thing, and that there are some areas where government regulation makes sense. We were talking about the roads yesterday, yeah. and I was using one road metaphor, and you in this great article you wrote that I just tweeted a little while ago for anybody who hasn't seen it already. Um, you talked about another aspect of roads. You were saying, like, look, are you saying that you think the government shouldn't build roads and all roads should be private toll roads? Very few people would make that argument. So if you're talking to someone who thinks that net neutrality is bad because government is regulation is bad, if you can get that person to accept that, well, for example, it's okay, in fact, it's desirable for the government to build and regulate roads, maybe the internet is a kind of road that right. could be used more efficiently by more people, more productively for society and the economy as a whole. If there's some form, again, we haven't even gotten to what form, of government regulation. And to me, that's a proper framework. And if you adopt that framework, it's possible that a person will say, okay, no, you're right. 
there are some areas that the government should regulate, like roads, and there are some things the government should be involved in, for example, schools, the post office, uh, health care for military veterans, and some other areas. But I think those areas are all different than the Internet, and here's why. That is fantastic. Now you're having a non-remedial, productive conversation where people can reasonably disagree and both maybe learn something. Both maybe refine their positions. Both walk away, even if they haven't agreed on the specific topic, they can walk away with a, a greater level of mutual understanding. We get more, more light and less heat. And all those things are good. And it's all caused by proper framing, not by agreement on conclusions. Yeah. And I think I think that's like a, that itself is sort of an important framing, um, you know, and, and, you know, one of the examples with the net neutrality thing was, you know, I made it clear in, in talking about, you know, uh, the article that you're talking about was this sort of free market defense of, of net neutrality. Um, and, and in it, I make clear, like, you know, I'm, I, you know, I, I quote sort of, you know, well-known free market uh, economists like like Hayek and uh, Milton Friedman and, right. and, you know, explain sort of, you know, where they point out like, you know, and both of both of whom were, you know, very much against most forms of government regulation and point to all the problems that it can lead to. But both right. had situations where they say, you know, there could be a few exceptions right. if we're careful, if it meets these criteria. And so I went through those kinds of criteria and then looked at whether or not, you know, uh, internet matches up. And, and one of the points that I raised at the beginning was like, look, if you're an anarcho-capitalist right. and you don't think that the government should ever you know, let alone, you know, exist, right. let right. alone, uh, uh, you know, be involved in regulating anything. This argument, this article is not designed to convince you because it's not going to, right? I mean, that's a different argument altogether. And you can believe yes. that. Um, and this article is not is not going to convince you. And, and of course, you know, the funny thing was that someone who I believe, you know, has those beliefs came in in the comments and got really angry at me for, for daring <laughs> to... To, you know, to suggest that 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 the you know the ANCAP argument is not worth considering, and you know, I was not what you said, right? I, I had I you know, and I said to that 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 individual, like you've proved my point. Like this article is not designed for you; it's right. not going to convince right. you, and it didn't. So you know, you arguing that that the ANCAP position is obviously the right one. Well, you know, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, con congratulations. Right. If 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 you believe as a matter of I, I think it's almost in a dogmatic way, almost as a matter of religious faith, that there's yeah. not a single area the government should involve, like that, as you say, that, that there shouldn't even be a government, not with regard to currency, not with regard to law enforcement or the military or schools or, or roads or anything. If, if you believe that, then you are being entirely consistent in saying the government should regulate should not regulate the internet because that's completely consistent with a philosophy that the government should regulate nothing so right. of course the government shouldn't regulate the internet if it should be regulating nothing fine i thought you did a pretty nice job but you know someone's always going to say something <laughs> saying, look if that's your belief this isn't for you what i'm saying is right. if you believe there are some areas some uh examples of market failure of the type that, say, Milton Friedman described. Now we can have a productive conversation about whether the internet is subject to market failure and would be uh, better used, more accessible, more beneficial for society with some form of regulation than with no regulation at all. That's it. Maybe we won't agree, right. but we should at least we should at least make the inquiry instead and of trying to shut it down just by saying, no, no, regulation yeah. is bad. 
And and you know to some extent, and and, and I said this to you, there there are questions of sort of intellectual honesty in terms of these debates, right? You know, like I, I could see a, a very intellectually honest debate that disagrees with my my conclusion and looks yes. at the quotes of of Friedman and Hayek and says, you know, this this market is different. Or even even if you agree right. that that there's mar market failure in that area, that the regulations that are put in place right. are worse than 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 the problem of the market failure. Those totally are those intellectually are, honest and defensible arguments. Exactly, and and I might disagree with you, and we can challenge the assumptions. We can have that debate and that discussion, but but you know, and but that isn't that's an interesting debate. That's one that that people can learn from and right. and get value from, as opposed to just the like, you know you know, you idiot, there's no such thing as market failures, which is, which is what exactly. You know. And there's another benefit to all this to what I consider to be proper framing. And it's this, in addition to the fact that so if two people, I mean, it's and it's obviously a lot more than that on the internet, right? Because for, yeah. for every person who's engaging uh, in a discussion, there could be 10, 100 or 1000 people just lurking listening. But let's say it's just two, two people who are engaging on an argument, if you can do it, with a proper framework, then even if you disagree, I've, in my experience, you walk away feeling a lot more respected. And, and that's just good for society. There's just so much uh, heat and friction produced by people feeling like they're not respected. I get it. Nobody likes to feel disrespected. Right. So if you, can, if you can understand that if, if, if two people on this topic, uh, net neutrality, can accept that not all regulation is bad, then we can have a respectful conversation because we found common ground. Okay, but I think this is a topic where regulation is bad, or I think this is a topic where the kind of regulation you propose would be worse than various other options. That's the kind of thing that makes uh, people cohere instead of driving them apart. And at a society-wide level, yeah. it's really not a bad way to conduct yourself in the world, I think. So I try to do that. I'm sure I fail I mean, has, because has, yeah, the, right, has the art of like actually having a constructive argument is is that lost like did we, did we ever <laughs> so, so a, a couple thoughts on that mm -hmm. um if if i may <laughs> one of them is this technology yeah marshall McLuhan said that all media has <laughs> different media have different tendencies and yeah there's, uh, to me there's no doubt of that twitter is a great example of a me of a, a medium that has strong tendencies and yeah. what i mean by this is it's hard to show respect on Twitter. It's not impossible by any means, but it's harder than in other media. For example, face-to-face, -face, you've got tone, you've got expression, you've got body language. That's all lost on the internet. We have emoji, but those are a poor substitute. Twitter in particular, though, is hard to use respectfully because with 140 are now 280 characters, sure. um, you want to get right to your counter argument. Somebody makes a point. And you have to make it punchy. and Yes. Yeah. You, you don't have much space to make it. So... Um, a good, like, if, if we're trying to, people know these things. It's just that we forget them. And, and another problem is you can't see the person face to face. Right? When you see the other person's face, it's humanizing. When you can't see a face, it's dehumanizing. And so we go right yeah. for the jugular because, you know, we just don't see a human being worthy of respect or empathy or anything like that. Um, Mike, you got, um, you had an exchange, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago <laughs> that really stayed with me because it was so emblematic. Um, I remember there, there was a woman, a writer on Twitter who was advising, um, she was tweeting that nobody should write for free. Yes. I remember and this. you responded, you said, but is somebody paying you to tweet that? <laughs> and 
and she got she got really upset with you and i yes. i actually understood where both of you were coming from yeah you you were absolutely logically right because she was making a too broad argument she was saying you should never write for free while she obviously was herself at that moment in, in writing those words violating her own advice she was writing for free and because it was twitter and there were only 140 characters there's just no space for you to say something more nuanced like you know what? I think I understand what you mean. Like to, to yes. sort of feed back to her the I don't stronger know if Mike version. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second. That's not in my experience. Mike. You know what? Here's a good here's a good framework. I thought like if it were someone you really cared about, like your own child who'd made an overbroad or otherwise unsustainable argument, or your spouse or a parent or a best friend, or someone you really cared about and respected and who you wanted to feel you respect them, how would you respond? And probably the answer is, would be something like, well, I think I see what you mean. You mean like, for example, you shouldn't write a long piece and have someone say, oh, I'll publish that for you, but I won't pay you as your publisher, whether it's the Huffington Post or uh, a big New York publisher. You, you shouldn't write for free in those venues. And I think then the person would say yes and feel in saying yes, that you understand their argument. They feel grateful that you had... Uh, made their arguments stronger, more defensible by adding a little bit of nuance and some limitations. And then if you were to say, oh, I, I, I just wanted to reframe it that way because I thought some people might read it too broadly. Because obviously there are instances where writing for free, you're not being paid in monetary currency, but you see some other value. For example, when I tweet, you wouldn't even have to say just now when you tweeted. You could say, when I tweet, nobody's paying me directly, right. but I find that the exercise pays dividends of another kind, and that's why I do it, and the, the time it takes me to tweet is little, and the dividends are, while intangible, sometimes they seem <laughs> valuable to me. And then the person would say, oh, yeah, absolutely. Ab yeah, I get it. And everybody would re be respectful, and it would be a much more productive and interesting <laughs> conversation. I'm truly not blaming either one of you for this. I've done, all of us have done it. I was about it. to say, I'm like... <laughs> feeling bad now. no 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 no, no. <laughs> i i just loved it as a pristine example of her argument was wrong it didn't have nuance maybe she didn't have time for the nuance or space for it on twitter but then your response was similar and it produced a lot of heat yeah and uh and she she got a little more upset than i think was warranted i mean it, it, i don't i think it would have been fairly easy to say ah that's a good point i i should have i should have added a little nuance there i should I mean, that argument was a little broad but i should have said was whatever um, but again, so, so Twitter does cause, I think, a lot of these, or, or does foster, cause is too strong a word, but it fosters a lot nuance, of these conversational problems. Because lost because of the platform. Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you've got 140, what well, now, 280 characters. Sure. You've got to go right to the argument destruction. And nobody feels good when they <laughs> to have, there's no, there's no, no you, I don't feel respected. I said something on the internet and yeah. somebody just went right for the carotid artery instead of saying, Barry, instead of demonstrating first oh i respect you i understand you i appreciate you and now i want to just try to work with what you said in a way that'll be productive and uh, and show some appreciation it just twitter's hard with all that it takes more time and energy so anyway i think that's part of the problem but all these things are just they're they're more um difficult skills they're things we learn Hopefully, we learn right. as we get older and go through life. I, I don't think, like, there's nothing I'm saying right now about how to, how to have a more productive conversation that would be immediately understandable to a young child. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just not. When you start off, understanding how it is on the other end is, that's something you learn. It's not something yeah. um, I think we're really good at innately as human beings. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think it's tough and... and 
you know, I mean, you know, to be fair, like that situation with the with the tweet and stuff. I mean, my response was clearly snarky, and you know, there there is an element of of Twitter sort of encouraging snark. Sure, for <laughs> yeah. sure, it, it it does that too. All, to all media have tendencies. Yeah, yeah. Look, it was a little bit snarky, but also, but just in terms, <laughs> like if a Vulcan were reading that exchange, <laughs> right. the Vulcan would have said, "But Mike, you were absolutely right. Why did she get upset? She should have said, oh, that's a good point.' But and, and I'm I'm really not blaming her right. or obviously you. She's human. Right. Um, it never feels good to have someone do that. It just doesn't. And Twitter, yeah. Twitter is just like Twitter is designed yeah. to foster that kind of exchange rather than the more appreciative, respectful. But I mean, you know, I'm I'm wondering though, like, I, I mean, if you even go outside of sort of the social media and the framework, like, I mean, I don't feel like we have those kinds of respectful debates in politics. Like, you don't see the kind of respectful debate in Congress for the most part. Um, no. Right. You I mean, know, so like it, any any type of political debate is not structured as a conversation. They're not even facing each other, like barely. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> and it's, but it's not even like I mean, and this is this is a, a larger issue and something that I've gone back to a lot of the time, which yeah. is like, you know, most political debates these days are, are not about what is, you know, best policy for the country. It's about who wins and who loses. Right. It's sort of the horse race aspect right. of it. I mean, it'd be, yes. it'd be amazing if we actually had like a like a presidential debate where the candidates are like, yeah, you know what? Actually, you have a good point. I'll I'll give you that one. <laughs> it's, it's very and... <laughs> rare. <laughs> that would be yeah. crazy. I don't know. Yeah, it's true, and and it's too bad. I think there's almost there's a continuum in these things, where um, one is to respond substantively, respectfully, like to really try to. Um, I, I look at it this way: like if somebody. I don't do this as much as I should. I really, I try, and uh, because I'm human, I, I don't succeed as much as I'd like. But when someone makes an argument on a topic I'm passionate about, my first yeah. instinct, maybe because I used to be a lawyer, is to destroy the argument, <laughs> is, to, is to look for the weakest part right. and, and attack the weakness and by implication destroy the whole argument. And, and that's really a bad way to conduct yourself in the world. Uh, for, it's bad for the world, it's bad for the other person, and it's even bad for us because in doing something like that, maybe I win in some sort of weird, egotistical, narrow sense, but what's lost is the opportunity to learn something. So what I try to do now is instead of looking for the weakest uh, version of the argument, which may be the argument they as they articulated it, what I try to do is ask myself, what is the strongest possible version of that argument? They didn't make it. They didn't say it quite right. But is what they said completely insane? And, and very <laughs> rarely is what someone said just completely insane and there's nothing you can do with it. Usually there's something. And so, and Twitter is the wrong medium for this because it's too short. But if you can say, <laughs> so I think I understand. Are you saying? And then give them the argument they should have made, the strong argument, the one you would have the hardest time countering. And and I've never done that, and every time I've ever done that, the other person has, has always gratefully said, yes, that's, that's what I mean. And why wouldn't they? Because they realize, oh, they said something that was inherently weak, and you reframed it into something strong and more defensible. And then, so they're already feeling good. You're not trying to attack them. You're not trying to destroy them um, by proxy, by destroying their argument. You're on their side. And then you can say, okay, and now you've got a strong argument that you need to work with and maybe it's so strong that you need to reconsider some of your own views or even if it doesn't rise to that level it can still be something that you can better hone your own arguments your own views um against because it's just it's more worthwhile than some easily destroyed weak argument that the person made without uh maybe without thinking it through and by the way one last thing about this the the um the logical conclusion of of 
attacking the weakest version of the argument one step further down would be a straw man. And people do right. that all the time. Oh, it's, I don't even want to attack what you said. Not even the weak thing you said, the strong thing you said. <laughs> I want to make up something you didn't say at all and attack that because that's the weakest thing possible. I made it up myself. And even though obviously that's much a straw, attacking a straw man, something a person didn't say at all, to me is much worse than attacking something the person did say that's weak. It's still kind of the same human instinct of looking for the weakness right. rather than trying to build something that's just better for everyone. Yeah, it's it's looking for something that I can destroy as opposed to, you know, what what value can I take out of this discussion? Exactly, or and people pick up on that. Um, there's in when you're writing a novel, you think or, or a, a script, you think in terms of text and subtext. Text is what's being said. Subtext is what's really being communicated, what's meant and what's understood. And when you go immediately for the argument destruction, what? You're, yeah, you're just you're saying, well, this is all about the argument. But what people feel, what they receive is you're trying to destroy me. You're going after me. You don't respect right. me. And then they get defensive. And that's just human. And then you wind up, you know, and then everybody starts shouting at each other. <laughs> <laughs> and we have politics. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and everyday conversations, I think, in some in some cases. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting, though. I mean, have you have you. Have you tried using these these sort of techniques on on Twitter, and how successful have they been? Yeah, all the time. Twitter is hard because there's not much space. Right. Um, but in any time, if I'm writing a blog post, and certainly in person, I always try to use these things. Um, I had a I had a really good experience a year and a half ago. I was invited to speak alongside uh, um, former CIA and NSA director Hayden at uh, an organization called the Association of Former Intelligence Officers, their San Francisco chapter. And um, I don't know if you remember, but uh, Mike Hayden at the time had just published a book called Playing to the Edge. It was a memoir of his time as the head of the NSA and, C uh, and CIA. And the room had 100, they, they were maxed out. They had to turn people away. It was 100 former members of what the uh, the U.S. intelligence apparatus likes to call the the intelligence community because it sounds so friendly, like an intelligence <laughs> neighborhood. So former CIA, FBI, naval intelligence, law enforcement, uh, that sort of thing. A hundred people. And, and I was the only guy there with long hair and some stubble, let's put it that way. <laughs> um, and and I talked about Snowden. And I I didn't do a poll beforehand, but just just the way people were looking at me, when I started speaking, um, they were prepared not to like what I was going to say. So I took my time to make them feel respected in a variety of ways, and I do respect them, and I respect their work. Um, certainly respect their intentions. Right. But then I, I pointed out that there's this propagandistic notion in the establishment media that Snowden violated his oath of secrecy and i was like come on how many of you have read that or even think it a lot of people raise their hands that snowden violated his oath of secrecy and i remember reading josh marshall a uh, talking points memo was writing about the oath of secrecy and how snowden violated it, and david brooks in the new york times and some other establishment pundits and what was interesting to me and what i talked about at this thing is that first of all there is no such thing as an oath of secrecy for any government employee i worked at the cia i know it um there is, there is an oath. It's the oath to protect and defend the U.S. Constitution. That's the oath. There is actually a secrecy thing. That's an NDA, what in Silicon Valley we call a non-disclosure agreement. Call it a secrecy agreement. It's fine. It's not an oath. Um, and, and to talk about the secrecy oath, while which is fake, uh, which doesn't exist, 
on the one hand, and to deny the existence of the actual oath that does exist, the oath to protect and defend the Constitution, uh, is propagandistic. It's a false framework. And that's what I wanted them to understand. And I made the same point we're making on this, um, on this podcast, which is this. I said, you may believe that, in, that Snowden didn't follow his conscience. And we can have a productive conversation about that. Or you may believe that in following his conscience um, and deciding that his oath to the Constitution outweighed his NDA, he made a mistake. And that secrecy agreements should always outweigh oaths to protect the Constitution. You may believe that. I would not agree with you. But we can have that discussion. And then we're having a productive, reality-based conversation. But to try to have a conversation about how somebody violated an oath of secrecy is just inherently unproductive because no such thing exists. It's inherently propagandistic. It helps you feel, and, and this is what I was talking about earlier, I think the, the utility of that false framework is that it guarantees the outcome you want, which is hmm. Snowden is a villain, he's a traitor. How do I know? Because he violated his oath, but he didn't. And if you, if you acknowledge that this is someone who is faced with competing uh, imp- imperatives, one to secrecy and the other to the Constitution, at least as he saw it, then you're in a much more nuanced world, a world that where you have to open your mind a little bit and imagine what it might, what it might be like to be such a person caught between two competing imperatives. Those are hard things. They require imagination and empathy, some rethinking of, of one's own position. Nobody wants to do all that hard work. <laughs> we're lazy. We're human. And so instead, you pick a framework that in this case is just a false one, that I violated his oath um, of secrecy, so he's a traitor. Anyway, I, I, was, um, I was really pleasantly, not exactly surprised. I've, I've worked hostile rooms before, and uh, it's not really a secret. Again, it's like you show respect, be patient, uh, and, and miracles happen. But so it was, it was a really happy experience for me to see those hostile stares starting to turn into grudging and then less grudging smiles as people are like, well, you know, that's a good point. And a lot of people came up to me afterwards and said, you know, you made a lot of good points there. I'm like, hey, we don't have to agree. <laughs> uh, right. But I'm glad that we can agree at least on, on a framework and then disagree on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's a good example. I, it's um, because that's a case where I think obviously there will probably be a lot of people who will disagree and still feel like the secrecy was the more important thing. That's fine. Or, or that, you know, or they could even argue that, you know, that the, the supposed conflict between the, the oath to protect and defend the constitution and, and, and the, the NDA over secrecy were not in conflict. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of arguments that you can make there, but, but, you know, but arguing that he, you know, is, right. is no good because he violated his oath of secrecy. It, that's, that's a, that's the problematic argument. Yeah. So. It's not, it's not real. So yeah. there's not, this is not, you wind up <laughs> shouting at people if, if you're not careful. Yeah. And, and I think that's actually like, a, um, like a really good, like the, the framing that you have of, of it not being real. I mean, this was something that we discussed, which is like, you know, when you have proper framing, the discussion is about reality. When, when you don't, you, you know, the discussion becomes, you know, well, you know, fake news or alternative <laughs> facts or however you want to describe just, it. I would call it just inherently propagandistic or, sure. or else it's just, you don't want to reverse engineer a framework from a favored conclusion. Right. It just probably won't lead to good results. It, it, I could see where it might make you feel good, but that's <laughs> right. actually something we should be suspicious about. You know, am I doing this because I'm really trying to get to the truth? That can be difficult and even painful. If it makes you feel too good, then 
take a step back and ask yourself, is this making me feel too good? Is that maybe the point of it all? Well, I mean, there is the counter argument too, that like some people might set up a framework because it sort of forces people into a, a certain conclusion. Yes. So like you can have a wrong framework or a faulty framework, I guess. Um, and so I, I guess we should try and at least somewhat distinguish that, right? I mean, so you could argue over the assumptions of the framework and I think that's, that's absolutely, you know. it's really, and it's really important to do that. I, I agree. I mean, a lot of frameworks, um, they can be faulty. They can be deliberately propagandistic. In fact, um, it's important not to get sucked into a false framework yeah. when, when you're arguing, I've been, I've been active over the years against torture and one of the most misleading propagandistic frameworks that I've come up against is one as also one of the most widespread, which is, uh, it's almost boring. I've encountered this so many times on the internet. It's this, well, Barry, um, what do you, what do you think? You don't want to torture these uh, terrorists. They're never terror suspects, by the way, they're always terrorists. Right. Um, you don't want to torture these terrorists. What do you want to do? Tea and crumpets. That is, by the <laughs> way, that cliche is the most common way of framing that, that uh, fake argument, that propagandistic argument and it's interesting too there's it's, it's like problems within problems <laughs> cliches a resort to cliche is usually evidence of thoughtlessness cliches are lazy they're comforting so when someone says something like tea and crumpets there's no thought in that they pulled that off the very most reachable shelf at the front of their mind <laughs> and i mean I'm, I'm not trying to put anyone down we all do these things again like i think humans are in many ways inherently lazy so we're always looking for the shortcut but that's I, again and again i'd come across it what do you think um, if we, we can't torture them, what do you think we should do? Tea and crumpets? And my response is always the same. I was like, if using the full power, using the full power of your imagination, can you think of any way that we should approach a suspect in custody that's not torture and that's not tea and crumpets? Can you think of anything? And that's a little bit of an aggressive way to make the point. I'm not showing as much respect there as, I, as I've advocated <laughs> right. earlier in the podcast. But the point is, of course you can. It's not binary. And to suggest that if we don't torture them, then we just have to put them up at the Ritz and feed them you know, <laughs> tea and crumpets. Tea and crumpets. That's just crazy. Um, what? I, and then I ask other questions like, what do what do police do with suspects? criminal suspects, other kinds of criminal suspects when they bring them in. Do they do, is it always torture or tea and crumpets or are there other things they do? There are so many ways of eliciting information from, uh, from people in your custody. And, and to suggest that it's all only torture or tea and crumpets is, um, it, it's, it's weird. It's almost like a way of shutting down reality. And as I said earlier, obviously the What's going on here, at least to me, I think is obvious is this. People want to resort to torture, not for any tactical reasons. I've, I've known dozens of interrogation experts from the CIA, the FBI, the Naval Investigative Service, local law enforcement. Um, I've worked with um, people who collectively have hundreds of experience um, uh, as part of a, an effort by Human Rights First to, um, to properly ban torture in America. I've never met someone with real-world interrogation experience who supports torture. And every, every experienced interrogator I've ever known from the military, intelligence, and law enforcement has always been against torture, not just on legal grounds and moral grounds, but also on tactical grounds. That itself should be telling. Um, but all these people have 
can tell you dozens of ways and, and hundreds of techniques for eliciting actionable intelligence. The people who want to torture don't want to torture for any kind of tactical reason. It's emotional. It's always emotional, one kind of emotion or another. But that's not something we want to admit to ourselves. We don't want to acknowledge that we're attracted to punishing or hurting someone or to negative reinforcement generally because it's somehow emotionally gratifying. That would undermine the goal, which is to inflict the punishment. So we try to build some sort of logical veneer. And here the logical veneer is, oh, well, we have to torture because otherwise we just have to give them tea and crumpets. Tea and crumpets <laughs> can't be right. There's only one thing left, torture. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's a, that's a good example. It also, I mean, it reminds me of you know, I I, I get into copyright debates so frequently, um, and uh, and you know, it's one of those things. Yeah, there there was um, uh, this copyright lawyer, Bill Patry, wrote this book called uh, Moral Panics and the Copyright Wars, where he talks specifically kind of about the framing and the language, and you know, one big example, of course, being. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, just the framing of copyright infringement is theft, right? I mean, that's an easy right. one, but it's one that, you know, people are just like, well, you know, if, if somebody takes something that, you know, in an infringing way, that's obviously theft and theft is bad. Therefore right. it's bad. Right. Right. And it's like, well, it's, you know, it's a little bit more nuanced than that and a little bit more complicated than that. And so like, you know, so those of us who don't want to call it theft because we don't think that's an accurate framing device, you know, argue against and then people are like, well, then clearly you support piracy. It's like, wait a second. No. By the, <laughs> That's yeah. not what By I the way, all yeah. those all those terms are also loaded yes. with the aim of uh, achieving a certain political outcome. Piracy, that is I mean, I, respectfully, because I, I think it's really important to choose uh, favorable nomenclature. Piracy is just genius yeah. <laughs> uh, if you're if you're trying to metastasize copyright. Yeah. And theft also, because yeah, once you've identified a thing as theft, then as you just you just laid it out, X is theft, theft is bad, bad has to be stopped, X has to be stopped, we're done. It's Miller time. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's you know, but you know, the more you look at these things, you know, the more you look at it, sort of any any sort of big policy debate, you begin to see that same sort of setup, you know, and, and so it's kind of interesting where I wonder where there's this this sort of balance where the framing is important, but but you know, inaccurate framing is problematic, and so. You know, I, it almost it, it, it almost strikes me as like you know, in, in certain well, you're a former lawyer, you know, in certain uh, lawsuits, you have the situation where um, it's uh, you know there are, are facts agreed upon, you know, stipulated facts that that right. all the parties agree on, and then you debate you know about the meaning of those facts and sort of you know whether or not the law was violated or whatever but you have that important framing as as the basis right. and i almost wonder if we could have more interesting debates around these various issues if we could have sort of stipulated facts that everyone agreed to at, at the beginning and, and you can battle over those and, and i'm sure that in many lawsuits whenever they have that that situation that the battles over this the stipulated facts uh, are are pretty fierce. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, because of that very reason that, you know, if you, if you have something that it leans in one direction or the other, it can, can tilt the whole balance. Right. Um, but it would be sort of an interesting, you know, interesting policy tool if people could, could use that within a policy debate. It would be interesting to see that. But as you say, probably then the whole conversation <laughs> would devolve to what are the agreed upon facts. Sure. I don't, I don't know how to do it other than 
to try to take responsibility for making things better myself. Um, <laughs> I, I know that uh, it's when, when we feel we've been attacked or offended upon in some ways because we're human, we want to hit back. They deserved it. By the way, in the torture context, that was another, uh, I should be, instead of a frequently asked question, it's a frequently encountered argument. <laughs> People would say, well, they started this. Al-Qaeda flew those planes into the Pentagon and the Twin Towers, and so um, so they're getting what they deserve, or will they torture people? Right. And and again, it's interesting. So it's you're really reverse engineering there from what the outcome you want, which is it's okay for us to torture. And my response to that would be was always, um, do we want to base our moral, ethical, and legal code on what Al Qaeda does or doesn't do? <laughs> so so what you're saying is. Our behavior is up to them. Our values right. are a function of Al-Qaeda. That can't be right. That's how I would answer that one. So on this one, it's it's really easy to say something like, well, he started it. You know, <laughs> Or maybe there's right. a more adult version, but it, but it comes down to the same thing. He started it, and instead, um, I try, not always with the success I want, to to respect the other person, not to get irritated too fast about what I consider to be a wrong-headed or even pernicious argument uh, to do the hard work of, of trying to find some common ground, showing some respect, and then to try to build or, or establish a framework that won't by any means necessarily produce agreement, but yeah. that will produce a, that will foster a, a, a productive conversation, some mutual respect and some um, some so, some societal coherence. Yeah, that's I I try to do that even when uh, when I feel like the other person doesn't deserve it because he started it. <laughs> I don't know what else to do beyond that. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, and and to to we're gonna we'll wrap up soon. But like to bring this all back around to like the net neutrality debate. I mean, one of the posts that I had written uh, a few weeks ago discussing net neutrality. Um, you know, the, the chairman of the FCC is this guy, Ajit Pai, and I disagree with him on a whole bunch of <laughs> the issues around this. And, and I had written a post and, you know, what's been, you know, concerning at least a little bit is like, you know, since he put forth the, the plans to sort of wipe out net neutrality, like there've been a lot of really nasty personal attacks on him um, right. and, and on his family, which I think are, are, you know, wrong and seriously unfortunate and, and just obvious for, you know, for a whole variety of reasons, obviously a bad thing. And so I had written this post that sort of dug in on, on something that I believe that he was stating as sort of the, the very basis of, of why he put forth his plan that I, I think are, is based on a, a um, uh, well, a wrong <laughs> reading of history or a very right. distorted view of history. Um, and and it, it certainly bothered me because he knows the history. He's been a telecom lawyer for, for many years um, and has been at the FCC for a while and was at Verizon before that. And so, um, but, you know, I opened the piece by saying, like, I've I've met him a few times and I've had right. very productive and good conversations with him. I think he's, he's an intelligent person. And I think honestly that he thinks he's doing the right thing and he means well. And, and so, right. you know, I wrote that at the beginning as sort of this, you know, the, to, to make this point before then, you know, certainly going through some of his ideas and saying why I think he's wrong and he's making these, these bad assumptions or, or, or misleading the public in order to get what he wants. Um, but what, what struck me was, 
how many people just keyed in on that and <laughs> this issue of like me saying like he's you know he's not uh he's not evil and he's not you <laughs> right. know he's not trying to destroy the world and he has his reasons for doing what he's doing and so many people came back to me and were like i don't know like i i don't think i can accept the the this premise that he actually means well right and you know it's like there are really you know to me at least there really aren't that many like outright evil people <laughs> you know yes. i'm sure there are a few sure. but I, I i don't think the guy running the fcc is is evil yeah. <laughs> you know i think he's just misguided yes. but, but the fact that people couldn't even accept me saying that he's misguided yes. without you know framing him as as this sort of you know inhuman monster right is 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 a little bothersome i i agree for a variety of reasons including that assuming that everyone who disagrees with you is somehow malicious or evil or you know in the tank for right. this organization or that uh, in addition to the fact that it's probably not accurate it it again leads to bad results because people feel attacked and maligned they're not going to listen to you it just creates a lot of heat and not that much light it it actually makes me think of um violence in in the following way i'm not a pacifist but i think that the range of problems that are best suited by violence is quite narrow there right. aren't that many problems in the world that will be best addressed, redressed <laughs> with violence. Yeah. But because uh, for various reasons involving human nature, at least as I see it, we're attracted to punishment, violence, force, those sorts of things, we start to, we start to assume that uh, there are a lot of problems out there that we can solve by violence when in fact there are only a very few. And I think there's something similar going on. It's like, it's not to say, I'm not, when people say like, well, violence is never the solution. I'm like, please don't say that. I can, I can so instantly <laughs> give you an, an, an unending stream of hypotheticals where you'd be like, well, like, you know, that's a, that's a fair point. Um, <laughs> but, but it's rarely the best solution. And it's the same thing here. As you say, there are, you are going to meet people who really, there are, I, I, I believe in the existence of evil. Right. I think there are people in the world who are really are bad people. The world would be better off without them. They're really out to do harm. Yeah. I don't think you don't have to be a historian to believe that. <laughs> right? Right. But I also think that there are a lot fewer of those people than we sometimes think. And, and acting as though there are a lot more of those people and that you're encountering a lot more of those people than actually exist or that you are encountering is in a sense like using violence too broadly. Like it's just not going to work out for you if yeah. instead of using some sort of Dale Carnegie or verbal judo skills <laughs> or whatever, you're like, oh, well, I had to, you know, I had to hit him. I had to hit him with a brick. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah, well, he was bad. He was going right. you know, to, what? It's too much. It wasn't that kind of situation. And yeah, especially when you're talking about something like net neutrality rules. Sure, I, I, I can't see into Pi's heart. I'm not psychic. But I think... It's like um, um, Pascal's wager. It's like uh -huh. we'll do better. I don't. I can't prove it one way or the other, but we'll achieve a better result if we assume people like Pi have good motives, right? And and make our arguments accordingly. We'll just get better results, even if it turns out we're wrong and he's actually like right. twirling a Fu Manchu mustache <laughs> and you know cackling, <laughs> which I doubt. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's it's crazy, but but it's it's very interesting, and it's sort of you know I think these are important things to think about, which is why, you know I know I've had 
versions of this kind of discussion with you many, many times, but each time we have it, it's still, there's something new and, and interesting and, and, uh, even stuff I've heard before is, is useful as sort of repetition. <laughs> Back at you. Well, th these are hard things to do again. They, they do in some ways go against our default settings. So yeah. when someone has attacked you or your argument, you, you just want to attack back. I think if that's not universal, it's certainly really common. So it takes practice. I mean, I know these things. I've been thinking about them and, and trying to practice them for a long time now. And in many ways, I, I still suck at them. So it, it, <laughs> it, can't, it can't hurt to just keep trying to keep it in the forefront of your mind as you go out and encounter people in the world who strongly disagree with your politics or otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's useful. I think that's also a good way to end this podcast. Um, <laughs> so, but uh, if if you if people who are listening, if you enjoyed it, uh, hopefully you got something out of it too, and and hopefully you'll try and go out and have a productive conversation, discussion, debate uh, on some of these topics with some of the practice. Because yeah, yeah, I think it's it's something that is worth practicing, and it's something that uh, I know that I certainly fell out, fell at uh, trying over and over again. But it's it's good to to think about these things, and and to think about honestly, sort of the you know, just how we all frame the different debates, um, and and figuring out better ways to frame it and better ways to lead to more productive overall discussions. And so you know, I think that's that's uh, that's a useful thought. So uh, Barry, as always. Um, thank you so much for, for joining the podcast, for having this discussion. It's always interesting um, to have you on, and we will certainly have you back again sometime in the future thank as well. Thank you, Mike. I will look forward to it. Always great to talk to you, and thank you for everything you and TechDirt do. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And uh, everyone who's listening, thanks as well. And uh, we'll be back soon with more podcasts. So thanks. Cheers. Cheers. Back. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig up the